Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we will be talking with Matthew Bunn. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we will be talking with Matthew Bunn about his new book, Insider Threats. Matthew Bunn, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Bunn, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a professor of practice at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Um, I've been there for quite some time. Uh, I run a research group that's called Managing the Atom, which is the hub of most nuclear policy research at Harvard University. And we're looking at questions of uh, how to limit the spread of nuclear weapons, how to manage the risks of nuclear weapons that already exist, what to do about the future of nuclear energy and whether uh, we can overcome the constraints and limit the risks involved in potentially expanding it as a tool to mitigate climate change. Um, so there's a variety of things we're looking at in our research group. Insider Threats covers a lot of ground with multiple case studies and lessons learned from the public and private sector. How did the book come about? Well, I've been working on nuclear security issues for uh, a quarter century now, um, since I uh, served first as a study director of a study about what to do with all the plutonium from dismantled nuclear weapons at the National Academy of Sciences in the early 90s, and then spent some time in the White House Science Office working, uh, among other things, uh, with Russia on uh, getting the program started to help Russia lock down its nuclear weapons and, and weapons usable nuclear material after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when a lot of the old nuclear security system that the Soviet Union had went away when the Soviet Union uh, went away. And it was pretty clear uh, over the years that the most important risks to nuclear materials and facilities came from insiders, from people who were authorized to have access to sensitive areas, sensitive materials, and so on. And my colleague, Scott Sagan at Stanford University, who co-edited the book with me, uh, had been noticing the same uh, phenomenon and had also been uh, working on uh, a broad range of nuclear issues and nuclear security in particular. Now, Scott was co-leading an effort at the uh, American Academy of Arts and Sciences called the Global Nuclear Future uh, Project, which was looking at uh, what effect it would have on the world if, in fact, nuclear power does spread to many additional countries, including many countries in the developing world. Uh, And so we put together... Uh, a joint project on insider threats as uh, a sub-project of that global nuclear future uh, project. And what we did is we said to ourselves, well, you know, we need to learn from real cases, but there are not very many real cases in the nuclear space where enough is known about what happened to really learn some lessons uh, about how to prevent similar cases in the future. So let's expand it out. Let's look at insider cases across a broad range of high security organizations and see if there are common lessons uh, that can be learned about how organizations should 
limit the risks posed by insider threats to the organization, whether it is an organization trying to protect secret information, an institution trying to protect nuclear materials, an institution dealing with uh, dangerous biological materials. Uh, There's a variety of different kinds of institutions that we looked at uh, in the book. So it, it really came about from a desire to learn lessons from real cases and a realization that there weren't enough in the nuclear space where we really knew what happened to really draw those lessons. Many books on terrorist attacks focus on individual actors and look for commonalities among those actors. It's interesting that your book uses case studies to look at organizational weaknesses and vulnerabilities. How did you decide to use organizational culture as a prominent theme? Well, one problem is that uh, you can have a lot of rules saying, you know, this is how security should be done. You can have a lot of equipment in place uh, to provide security. But unless the people in the organization are really paying attention to security and making security a priority, you're not going to have a secure uh, situation. And that issue of organizational culture, uh, which is also true in safety, by the way, um, unless people in an organization are really paying attention to safety, you're not going to have uh, you know, a low risk of accident in the organization either. Um, so that issue of culture had come up again and again, but it also came out of the case studies we asked people to write. It just leapt out as soon as we started talking about some of the real insider cases. To me, actually, the biggest thing I learned doing this project is just the scale of the red flags and sort of obvious indicators of a problem that organizations are prepared to ignore when it comes to insiders. Because none of us want to believe that our colleague down the hall, the person we've known for years, might actually be a threat to the organization. We And so we come up with ways to rationalize that oh, that's just, he's just being a little bit strange and that's just the way he is or whatever. Um, And so again and again in the cases we looked at, we found that it was organizational issues that were the root of why the insider incident had not been prevented. I want to turn back a little bit to the nuclear stuff. The first chapter really dives into the threats to nuclear facilities. Given your expertise in nuclear security, what significant comparisons are there between insider threats to nuclear facilities versus other sectors? That first chapter is, I think, uh, a remarkable contribution. Uh, It's from uh, Thomas Heghammer, uh, who is a a Norwegian uh, defense specialist and uh, a colleague of his named Andreas Daly. And Heghammer is really one of, I think, the world's leading scholars of jihadi uh, terrorism and jihadi movements. And what they did is they put together a new database going through uh, the huge corpus of jihadi writings, um, both in sort of open publications like the newsletters the Islamic State publishes, uh, but also uh, various uh, jihadi sites on the dark web, 
And so I'm looking for cases of either real attacks uh, on nuclear facilities or um, uh, jihadi writing about attacking nuclear facilities, about using insiders to attack nuclear facilities. And in a sense, a lot of what they found is good news. Um, There is very, very little about nuclear issues that jihadis write about. There are um, various manuals uh, that have circulated that are uh, sort of jihadi textbooks on how to make a nuclear bomb, for example. Most of them nonsense. Um, There are a few higher quality documents um, in the uh, corpus of uh, things seized from uh, jihadi uh, organizations over the years. Um, but it's not a subject that comes up a lot, number one. And number two, uh, they found no evidence of cases of jihadis seriously thinking about recruiting insiders in nuclear organizations to attack the nuclear organizations. So that's the good news. The caveat uh, to that uh, is that, first of all, um, there have been a number of cases where there were jihadis in nuclear organizations who who sort of became radicalized while they were in the nuclear organization and then reached out. Um, so uh, that remains a worry. And secondly, um, if you look more broadly at jihadi behavior, um, uh, the using insiders, sometimes by coercing them, for example, by kidnapping families uh, of people they want to uh, get to do something for them, uh, is a fairly routine jihadi tactic. And in the Chechen wars, for example, Chechen terrorists uh, routinely kidnapped families of military officers uh, in Russia to manipulate them into, uh, you know, letting them in a back door or passing them through a checkpoint or what have you. The book discusses two high-profile incidents of insider attacks, the shooting at Fort Hood and the anthrax letters. Did these case studies reveal common vulnerabilities in high security organizations? So I think they revealed both uh, unique organizational dysfunctions and common uh, organizational dysfunctions. There is a uh, a common bias that almost all organizations suffer from, we think, after looking at these cases that we call NEMO for not in my organization, uh, on the model of NIMBY, not in my backyard. Uh, managers again and again sort of assume well, that that other organization over there might have a problem, but I would never have a problem in my organization uh, because uh, I know the people here, I trust them, they wouldn't be a problem. And again and again, you find organizations ignoring even egregious red flags. So in the case of Major Nidal Hassan, the the first Fort Hood shooter, First of all, he was uh, remarkably bad at his job uh, in the first place, um, constantly showing up late, performing poorly, etc. cetera. Um, uh, but uh, he had a number of characteristics that made him difficult to fire or difficult to discipline. Um, uh, so 
first of all, he was in a rank in the army that there weren't very many of, and so they needed to sort of preserve the people of those rank in, or, rank in order not to have sort of a gap uh, in the system. Secondly, he was Muslim, and commanders were afraid that if they uh, were too harsh with him, they'd be uh, accused of being uh, anti-Islamic uh, or what have you. Uh, and thirdly, he was uh, providing mental health therapy, and that was urgently needed um, in the uh, post-Iraq invasion uh, period, and uh, where there were long wait times, actually, for uh, mental health services. But here you had a person who, as time went on, uh, openly expressed support for violent jihad, uh, openly expressed support for uh, Osama bin Laden in particular, uh, was emailing with uh, Anwar Alaki, uh, a known uh, al-Qaeda recruiter. Um, and all of that was actually known to the organization. And they somehow failed to take uh, any action about it. Um, so he was under investigation by a uh, the FBI and a joint terrorism task force, uh, but there was some confusion about whether the people in uh, California or the people in Washington were supposed to be in charge of the organization, and each thought the other was following up on certain things uh, when, in fact, neither were. Uh, but they also um, assigned people who had uh, to look at the uh, dossier who had no prior uh, terrorism experience um, of any kind, uh, that this investigator uh, never interviewed Hassan, uh, looked at the emails back and forth with Alaki and decided, oh, he's just doing uh, praiseworthy research on the threat um, again, without ever interviewing Hassan, without inter interviewing any of his colleagues, uh, without uh, talking to any terrorism experts, uh, reaching that conclusion. Um, and so uh, no action was taken uh, about Nidal Hassan, who then uh, ultimately brought uh, weapons into the base uh, and killed quite a number uh, of his colleagues in a huge uh, shooting rampage. Um, so there, there were uh, a number of dysfunctions within the army system um, and a number of dysfunctions within this external uh, investigatory uh, system. Within the army system, one remarkable feature was that there were actually two sets of evaluations of, of officers. Uh, there was one set that was only held locally at the base and didn't go with you when you went to a new assignment. And that's the set where commanders really put in what they really thought about people and the real information. Uh, whereas the set that went with you was entirely intended for promotions and to sort of uh, 
smooth uh, way for promotions. Um, and so it was very, very rare to put any negative information at all into those uh, reports. And when the outside the army people looked into, started investigating, they only looked at these more formal evaluations that had no negative information in them. And so they didn't see any negative information that would have caused them to take a closer look uh, had they looked at it. So it was a, it was um, institutionally poorly set up. Amy Zegart, who wrote a really brilliant chapter for the book on this case, she points out that uh, quite a number of uh, army officers were disciplined for their failures uh, in overseeing uh, Major Hassan. But if seven or nine commanders all make the same mistakes, it's not a mistake by that commander. It's a mistake baked into the system, is the argument uh, that uh, Amy makes uh, in that remarkable uh, chapter. So the Bruce Ivins case uh, is also an amazing one in terms of what the organization was prepared to ignore. Bruce Ivins, listeners may remember, uh, almost certainly perpetrated the anthrax attacks in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks. There were these envelopes with powdered anthrax that were sent to uh, the U.S. Senate, uh, some media organizations and others. Uh, Several people were killed. Uh, Quite a number of people were sickened and thousands were um, uh, frightened and uh, ended up having to be treated with antibiotics. Um, And Bruce Ivins was an insider. He was a senior scientist at the Army's biological defense research facility working on anthrax. Now, Bruce Ivins, uh, for decades, had suffered from serious mental health problems. Nonetheless, he may have had a a slightly rational reason for carrying out those attacks in that um, he had been told his uh, program that was working on defenses against anthrax attacks uh, was going to be cut. And a vaccine that he had worked on uh, for anthrax was very controversial uh, because of uh, arguments about side effects. Um, so it's at least possible that part of what, why he carried out these attacks was to uh, highlight the danger of anthrax attacks and thereby uh, cause more spending uh, that he thought was needed on biodefense and support his own program, which was in danger of being cut. In any case, um, Bruce had, Ivans had behaved uh, in an eccentric way uh, for the whole time he had been at the uh, biological defense uh, facility which was now many years by the time these attacks had happened. And as he began behaving more and more strangely, 
uh, the organization in a certain sense was inoculated by his past strange behavior to paying any attention to it. People said, oh, it's just Bruce being Bruce. Uh, but his uh, behavior indicated very serious mental health problems. And in fact, he'd had very serious uh, mental health issues dating back decades, long before he uh, joined the biological defense facility. The first psychiatrist he ever saw uh, concluded that he was the most dangerous patient she'd ever seen in her career. And decades later, when the attacks occurred, even though she did not know that he had gone into biological defense work, she looked at the headlines about these anthrax attacks and immediately thought, I wonder if that's Bruce. Now, it turned out it took the U.S. government five years to figure out that it was probably Bruce Ivins. Unfortunately, the the case never went to trial and was never proven in court uh, because as he was about to be indicted, Bruce Ivins committed suicide. Um, but there was an extensive uh, National Academy of Sciences study of the science behind the uh, FBI's investigation that pointed to Ivins. And then there was an extended um, study by a behavioral panel uh, impaneled by a judge who were given access to uh, all of the investigation records, um, Ivan's personal emails, his medical records dating back many years. uh, And it's one of the participants in that panel, a forensic psychiatrist by the name of Ron Shoten, and uh, a woman named Jessica Stern, who's a longtime terrorism expert uh, who wrote a book on uh, terrorist use of weapons of mass destruction and is a uh, is now at Boston University who contributed the chapter uh, in our book. It's uh, co-written by the two of them. Uh, it's really a, a remarkable story because of uh, Shooten's experience on this panel. They're able to provide a really detailed uh, account of uh, the organization and Ivan's uh, problems in the organization. Um, uh, so it's remarkable the kinds of things that the organization ended up ignoring. So, for example, Ivan sent an email to some of his staff complaining that his own paranoia was getting worse and worse and speculating about ending up in the newspaper with a headline of mad scientist in control of deadly germs. And that was not reported to anyone in the organization. Uh, At one point, one of the people working for him uh, went to his boss and said, I'm afraid of him. I think he's going to hurt me. And his boss just said, oh, well, there's this part of the facility that he doesn't have access to right now. Uh, Why don't you work there for the time being? And did no further investigation or follow-up on why an employee might think that one of the people in the organization was going to harm them. Uh, He went to, as his mental health deteriorated, he went to a, uh, a new therapist a junior therapist who worked in the pra- a practice overseen by a senior psychiatrist. And this junior therapist was absolutely terrified at the first 
meeting with him and went to her boss, the senior psychiatrist, psychiatrist, and said, we have to hospitalize this person as a danger. Uh, he's going to murder somebody. And because he had described a very detailed fantasy about murdering uh, a person who had worked for him. Uh, and the senior psychiatrist, without bothering to look at her notes, said, no, no, you're overreacting. We're not going to have him hospitalized. So what did she do at that point? Her first thing she did when she went back to her office was she called a lawyer to find out what her liability would be if he actually carried out his fantasy and murdered someone. Ivan's, over the years, had signed many, many documents giving the organization access to his medical records. No one ever bothered to review his medical records, even when incidents like, you know, oh, I'm afraid he's going to hurt me were coming up. If they had reviewed his medical records, they would have immediately taken away his access to dangerous germs uh, because it was obvious from his medical records that this was a person who had very deep mental health issues. Um, among other things, he was obsessed with uh, a succession of female staffers who worked for him. He was obsessed in a very bizarre way with a uh, sorority where one of the sorority sisters had rejected him when he was in college. Um, uh, but as I said, the organization had sort of been immunized to really looking into Ivan's by the eccentric behavior that he'd always exhibited. So in a way, you have different kinds of organizational dysfunctions, but in both organizations, both the Nida Hassan's organization and Bruce Ivins's organization, you have this sort of bias that we don't, we won't have any insiders in our organization. Everybody here has clearances. Uh, we know them. We trust them. Uh, we won't uh, have that problem here in our organization. And, and that's one of the most common biases and most difficult and troubling biases that we see in these cases uh, in the book. But I think both of those in-depth chapters really reveal a scale of organizational unwillingness to take the insider threat seriously that's quite striking. Yeah, as you touched upon, both of these cases speak to organizations missing red flags. And I thought another interesting point was in the, I believe, the Fort Hood chapter, the author speaks to the increasing complexity of threats in the national security space. And in some ways, the response to those threats is increasing increasing organizational complexity. Do you think that makes them more vulnerable to insider threats? So one thing that is making the problem of coping with insider threats more complex is all the different kinds of insider threats that are coming up. So uh, the uh, Nidal Hassan case and others created uh, a real concern about uh, workplace shooters um, and insiders actually killing some of their colleagues. Uh, and that points managers to looking at one set of indicators. And then you had cases like uh, Edward Snowden uh, stealing lots of 
documents from the National Security Agency uh, or uh, Chelsea Manning uh, stealing uh, all of the documents that she uh, dumped to WikiLeaks. Now, whatever you think about uh, whether those two people were justified in what they did or not, clearly it was a disaster for the organizations they were working for from those organizations' perspectives. And so that led President Obama to establish an order uh, on steps all agencies had to take to cope with insider threats. But that was very much focused on insider threats to classified information uh, as opposed to other kinds of insider threats. Uh, Now, uh, in today's uh, post-Harvey Weinstein world, there's a lot of focus on uh, people within the organization Uh, committing uh, various uh, sexual crimes or sexual harassment. Um, And so all of these kinds of issues have quite different indicators that you might be looking for. And so uh, managers who are very focused on one have a hard time noticing the issues that might point in the direction of another. And so It's not a one-size-fits-all thing, coping with insider threats, although there are commonalities that our book is trying to tease out between different kinds of organizations and different kinds of insider threats that they might face. Yeah, speaking of different types of organizations, in addition to the public sector incidents, you also look at private sector case studies in the gaming and pharmaceutical industries. What lessons can be transferred from those organizations to the public sector? We looked at uh, casinos and pharmaceuticals because in both of those cases, they have a profit incentive to get insider threat protection right. Whereas in nuclear organizations, often they don't really believe they're going to have a serious insider threat problem. And so they do what the government tells them they have to do but don't necessarily put a lot of creativity into thinking, how can we make our insider threat protection stronger and better? So we thought maybe people who have a profit incentive to make it stronger and better will have figured some things out that we can uh, draw lessons from for the nuclear industry or for other uh, high security Um, public sector organizations. Um, So in casinos, uh, it's really a very different environment. In In a nuclear facility handling, for example, nuclear weapons materials, uh, it's a very high security environment and everyone is pre-cleared and there's sort of an assumption that everyone is working for the national security and that they're all Patriots. Whereas at a casino, it's an organization about making money, and uh, they actually assume that a big fraction of their employees are probably thieves, um, and they just operate on that basis. Um, uh, so it really is a very different kind of environment. But nonetheless, there are a lot of interesting things that they do that are probably worth thinking about. Uh, in the uh, nuclear uh, industry. For example, they actually separate the people doing surveillance from the people doing security. In a casino, there are K-12 
cameras everywhere watching everything. Uh, whenever people have access to money or to chips, there's going to be a camera watching uh, what they're doing. And the reason they separate the surveillance people watching those cameras from the security people is so that they can't conspire together to have uh, cover up a insider theft. Um, so that's one interesting practice that they have. They also uh, have practices related to count, counting in relatively small batches, uh, counting with uh, multiple people involved in the counting uh, to make it more difficult uh, to uh, misdirect the count. Um, where uh, people are working with the chips, for example, on the floor, uh, they have the uniforms designed to make it extremely difficult to pocket uh, a chip and to hide it uh, on your person. Um, they do much more sharing of threat information among different organizations than ever happens in the nuclear industry. So if you get uh, banned from one casino uh, because of, you know, attempting to steal from that casino or counting cards or what have you, um, the other casinos will be told about it. And so you won't be able to just walk right down the street to the next casino and do the same thing. That's typically not true for uh, nuclear facilities. Similarly, for the um, uh, pharmaceutical industry, we looked at the people who make the kinds of uh, painkiller pharmaceuticals that people routinely want to steal. And similarly, they account for that material in very small batches uh, with multiple people and multiple systems watching and accounting for the material in each of the batches. If people are wearing uniforms that would make it very hard uh, to pocket uh, some of that material. The industry shares threat information uh, about people who have been stealing uh, these kinds of materials uh, and so on. They're a big, big thing that they're concerned about is within the whole supply chain, not just at the factory, uh, but in the transport of these drugs at the pharmacies uh, that are selling the drugs uh, and so on. Um, they have uh, clever approaches to sealed uh, packages. Um, uh, but in both the pharmaceutical industry and the casino industry, they are about making a profit. And ultimately, they take a view that you really can't take in the case of you know, highly classified information or material that could be used to make a nuclear bomb, which is Nah, small thefts, they're going to happen. It's not worth our, our money to invest in preventing thefts whose cost is less than the cost of the prevention would be. So they sort of assume that some theft is going to happen and is inevitable and is not really worth uh, worrying about a whole lot. Uh, and that's not really an attitude that you can plausibly take. Uh, in the nuclear industry or uh, when handling uh, the most classified information. You conclude the book with a worst practices guide or a list of what not to do. 
What are the biggest mistakes you see organizations making as they attempt to counter insider threats? Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of them. We end up with uh, uh, 10, sort of a a 10 worst commandments uh, kind of uh, arrangement. Um, And they're practices that we saw again and again as we looked at different cases. So the the fundamental and most important one is just assuming that you're not going to have insider threat problems in your organization. So we use the example of Indira Gandhi. Um, who had ordered a crackdown on a, uh, a an uprising at a Sikh temple. And her security manager told her, you know, the Sikhs are pretty upset. For the time being, maybe you ought to take the Sikhs off of your personal security detail, the people who are, you know, right next to you. Maybe we can deploy them out at the perimeter or something like that. And she said, no, I am the prime minister for everyone. And I, I can't be, you know, seen to be favoring one religion over another. Uh, and I trust these guys. I know these guys. These guys aren't gonna aren't gonna hurt me. And uh, w- one Sikh was her personal favorite, who had been guarding her for years, um, and she often uh, chatted with, including about non-security uh, issues when he was on duty. And uh, he and a a relative that he arranged to be put on the same shift with him gunned her down. So that confidence that she would not have an insider in her own staff proved to be fatal uh, for Indira Gandhi, a fatal mistake. Um, Related to that is a belief that, that one particular security measure will be sufficient and you don't have to worry about uh, other security measures. So a lot of organizations think, oh, well, we have background checks. Therefore, I won't have a security problem uh, among the insiders in my facility. I can trust them because they've been cleared. Uh, That's just not correct. Some people uh, pass through background checks, even though they are already an insider problem. Some people change after they've gotten their security clearance. So you can't rely on security clearances alone. Security clearances are important. Background checks are important, but you can't rely on them alone. Some organizations handling nuclear material say, well, you know, we have these portal monitors that would set off an alarm if anyone was stealing the nuclear material. Again, you can't rely on that alone. You need a comprehensive program, a multi-layered set of defenses that make the number and complexity of the challenges that an insider would have to get around in order to cause a serious problem uh, as substantial uh, as you possibly can. Another issue is that people forget that you might have insiders working together. You might have more than one insider. Now, it's very, very difficult to design a security system that's going to be proof against several people within your security system working together, especially if some of them are guards. But if you look at some of the big multi-million dollar thefts from non-nuclear facilities that have occurred over the years, uh, over and over again, more than one insider is involved. In one database that Sandia National Labs put together, In the cases they looked at, it was more often more than one insider than it was one insider. 
And so we have to be designing our systems uh, to uh, be on the lookout for uh, more than one uh, of the uh, uh, you know insider working together. Uh, one of the things they do in uh, a number of casinos, for example, uh, is they make sure that people who are close relatives aren't in the same part of the casino on the same shift in order to reduce the chance that people will be uh, conspiring uh, together. Another one that I think is is uh, surprising and is actually easy to fix uh, is organizations ignore the issue of disgruntlement within the organization. Over and over and over again, you find that it's the disgruntled individual, the individual that feels the organization isn't treating them well, that then doesn't treat the organization well and becomes an insider threat. Uh, so there are studies in the cyber uh, world of cyber insider theft and cyber insider sabotage, where over and over again, it's the employees that had already been perceived by others in the organization to be disgruntled who end up posing the insider problem. And organizations can address disgruntlement uh, with for fairly low cost. If you set up systems where employees can make complaints, where you listen to the employee complaints, uh, where sometimes they get addressed, and in particular, if you deal with bullying bosses, that you can reduce disgruntlement dramatically and uh, improve the morale of the organization while also uh, addressing the insider threat in a quite significant way. And not only is disgruntlement important, but the culture of the organization is important. You need a culture that is both about successful operation of the organization, but also secure operation of the organization, a culture where people aren't just following the security rules, but they're on the lookout. They're, they're looking out for this strange thing, the thing that just doesn't seem right. You know, those footprints shouldn't be there because there shouldn't be anybody who was walking there at that time. Um, that kind of thing. And uh, where they're willing uh, and routinely do report uh, on what's going on uh, so that the organization can follow up and try to see whether it actually is anything important or not. So some of, those are some of the key things, I think, that we found in uh, looking at how organizations cope with insider threats. Dr. Bunn, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, would you tell us about what you're working on now? Well, probably more than I should be. We continue to work on a number of aspects of uh, nuclear security. We've identified sort of several key areas where we think if you had really effective implementation, you could really reduce the risks of nuclear theft and nuclear sabotage, one of them being comprehensive measures to protect against insider threats. We're looking at North Korea and doing an analysis of how difficult it will be to deter North Korea now that it has nuclear weapons that can reach the United States. Uh, we are looking at what are the long-term risks posed by uh, Iran's nuclear program once the key restraints of the Iran nuclear deal begin to expire? 
And we're looking at various constraints that have limited the growth of nuclear energy and risks that might arise if nuclear energy were to grow on a substantial scale to try to look at the implications of using nuclear energy as a tool for mitigating climate change. Those sound like interesting projects, and I'll make sure to keep an eye out for them. Thank you again for being on the show today. Thank you very much. Matthew Bunn's book, Insider Threats, is available now from Cornell University Press.